All right, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. going to be continuing our sermon series, Walking Through the Book of Revelation. So I'm going to read the text for us, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump in. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7, the word of the Lord says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are gracious and kind to your people. Your word brings great comfort to us. Lord, I pray that through the teaching of your word this morning, God, I pray that you would edify the church Build us up in Christ-likeness. Sanctify us by the truth of your word. And God, if there are any here this morning who do not know you, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Spirit, you would convict the hearts of those who do not know you, God, and that we, or that they would be able to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ this morning. I pray all these things, believing them and trusting them to be true in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so if you're someone who uh, likes to take notes, or if you are someone who just likes to have a general roadmap of where we're going this morning, then the main point of the sermon is this. Jesus comforts his church by reminding them that he is the one who determines who are his and who are not. Jesus comforts his church by reminding them that he is the one who determines who are his and who are not. And this morning, I want to I point out three truths from this text that Jesus uses to comfort his church. So point number one, or truth number one, if you will. We are comforted by Christ's character. We are comforted by Christ's character. One of the unique literary features that we've examined so far in the letters to the churches in Revelation is the way in which Jesus addresses his churches. In these introductions, he addresses his churches by appealing to various aspects of his character that can be found back in Revelation 1 verses 12 to 20. 
And he uses these characteristics, these introductions to these churches to call his churches to repent, to spur them on in encouragement, and to protect them in perseverance until he returns again. And in Jesus' address to the church in Philadelphia, he gives three characteristics that are meant to, to breed deep and great comfort in who Christ is in the face of persecution among the world. Look with me at verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? This is where the letter starts, the quotation there. Jesus says, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And in this introduction, in this address to the, to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus first appeals to his holiness. He says, the words of the Holy One. The church in Philadelphia was facing intense persecution from, from a large group of Jews in the city. You see, these Jews were, they were prominent and they played a crucial factor in the cultural fabric of Philadelphia. Many of them were incredibly wealthy. Some even held high government office. And they used this leverage. They used this power against the church to bar them from the synagogues, to stone them, to mock them, to scold them, to turn them over to the authorities, which almost always inevitably led to death. And these Jews in Philadelphia, they were claiming that they were actually the true people of God. They were God's chosen people. And that this, this, this church, these, these Christians over here, they were just some heretical cult following some random false Messiah who claimed to be the true Messiah, but was actually just this, this false Messiah in a long line of false Messiahs throughout Israel's history. And this persecution and this mockery that the church faced would have been incredibly difficult to endure. And yet, as the gentle and kind Savior that Jesus is, he comforts his church by reminding them that he is, in fact, the Holy One of Israel. The one who came to take away the sins of the world. He comforts his church by reminding them that he is the Holy One who is uniquely and distinctly set apart from his creation. He's the Holy One who can truly give rest to the tired and weary soul. But he doesn't stop there. Look with me at verse 7 again. Jesus says, the words of the Holy One, the true one. As if the comforting words of the Holy One was not enough. Jesus then follows it by telling them that he is the true one. You see, church, understand that Jesus is truth embodied. Jesus doesn't merely fall under some, uh, you know, uh, like idea of truth. He doesn't fall under the banner of truth. Jesus doesn't just occasionally say some truthful things. Jesus is truth. It is his nature and his character and his being. He is truth. His words are are a truth that have no malice creeping underneath the surface. There are no ulterior motives behind Jesus' words. He simply speaks and truth radiates from his lips. And in these first two characteristics, Jesus reminds his people that he is, in fact, the Holy One of Israel. And they can trust that fact because he follows it up by telling them that he is the true one. 
Much like Jesus' love and his justice, his holiness and his truthfulness cannot be separated from one another. You can't pit those two characteristics against one another. Because as soon as you begin to try and, and pinpoint the differences between Jesus' holiness and his truthfulness, and you try to pull those things apart from one another, you begin to erode the divine nature of Christ. You see, Jesus is holy because his words are the purest form of truth. And Jesus is true because he is infinitely and perfectly holy. And as these words that Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia, as as these words are read aloud while the church is facing intense persecution, and while the church is dealing with, 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 with stones being thrown on every end of the spectrum, I can only imagine what it was like for them to hear these comforting words. For their Savior, the one in whom they were willing to risk it all for, the one whom they were willing to die for, writes to them and encourages them, saying that I am the Holy One and the True One. But yet again, Jesus does not stop there. Look with me again at verse 7. Jesus says, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. Who has the key of David. If these, if these Jews in the city would have gotten wind of Jesus calling or telling the church that he was the one who had the key of David, they would have known exactly what he was referencing. You don't have to flip there right now, but I would encourage you to, to jot this reference down so you can go back and read the story later because it's an interesting story. But in Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah recalls the story of a man named Eliakim. And in this story, God appoints Eliakim to have all authority over Israel because the previous person who occupied his office led God's people into corruption. And this story culminates in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, when the Lord says, And I will place on his shoulder, meaning Eliakim, said, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. You see, the Lord gave Eliakim authority to make governing decisions in Israel. He had authority to determine who was in and who was out. Yet, Eliakim was but a shadow of the true one who was to be the true appointee over all of the Lord's people. Eliakim was but a type and a shadow. He was given authority over a specific people at a specific place in a specific time in history. Yet Jesus, who is the king of kings that we'll see later on in the book of Revelation, Jesus, who's the king of kings, has authority over all of the kingdom of God from beginning to end. He has authority to determine who are his people and who are not. He is the one who grants salvation to those who are his and the one who executes justice on those who are not. Friends, the keys of the kingdom of heaven rest solely on the shoulders of Christ. No amount of persecution, no amount of mockery or scolding, not even death itself could pluck those who are the Lord's out of his hand. And again, this characteristic would have been deeply comforting for the struggling church in Philadelphia. 
because he addressed their specific problems in specific ways. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, does that mean these don't apply for us today? As Jesus writes to specific churches in the book of Revelation, does that mean these things don't apply for us today? Well, of course not. Of course they apply for us today. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, the characteristics that Jesus comforts the Philadelphians with still have the power to comfort us today. Jesus is still the Holy One today. Jesus is still the true one today. Jesus still has all authority over heaven and earth today. So friends, be comforted in that. Take heart, for Christ has reminded us that one of the ways in which he loves and shepherds and cares for his people is that he reminds them of his character and the joys and the wonders of his nature. And so maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're thinking to yourself, like, Andrew, I know that. Like, I've got the head knowledge. I've grown up. I've known that Christ is holy. I've been told that Christ is true. I know that Christ has all authority, and I know these things. But it's hard for me to feel that. It's hard for me to believe that today. Maybe you have external circumstances going on that life is just wearing you out right now. Things are very difficult. And friends, trust me, I know life can be hard, and so maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I know that Christ is holy and he's true and he has authority, but I just, I don't feel that. And church, if that's you, can I just, can I be honest with you? Like, let me, like, I, I, I know I can stand up here and I can, I can preach and I can teach God's word and that's awesome. But if I can just step out for just a second and say, you're not alone. I am right there with you in the thick of the struggles of realizing and understanding the true depth and goodness of God's character. Even right now, currently wrestling through some things in my own life, it can be difficult to plumb the depths of the goodness of God. But church, I plead with you, if that is you this morning, if you are finding it hard to find joy and comfort in the character of Christ this morning, if that is you, I plead with you as well as myself to continue to cling to the garment of Christ this morning. Christ promises us that if we will press into Him, even if we don't feel like pressing into Him, if we will press into Him and plumb the depths of His mercy, He will soften our hearts. You may be here this morning, and if that's you, and you're looking for, you want to talk to someone about it, I'll be right through those double doors after the service. Please come find me. I would love to talk with you through that. I would love to share with you my own struggles. I'd love to pray with you. Or maybe you don't really want to talk about it right now, but you just you want someone to pray for you. We have prayer deacons at this church. We have people who would love nothing more than to spend time interceding for you. So if that's you, I would encourage you. There's, there's connect cards. You know, Jared mentioned the connect cards in the back of the, in the pew backs. If that's you this morning and you just want someone to pray for you, take one of those Connect cards out. On the back of it, there's a spot for prayer requests. Like we want new members to fill out the Connect cards, absolutely. You know, that's, that's great, but church members, those are for you as well. Like don't think that just because you're a member of this church that you can't fill out a, a prayer request on the Connect card. You can fill those out and drop them in the black box, and we would be happy, and we would love nothing more than to spend time praying for you. 
But Christ continues on. Point number two, truth number two. We are comforted by Christ keeping us. We are comforted by Christ keeping us. Look with me at verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. As the progression of the text flows, what we see is Jesus move from this 30,000 foot view of his character to a pointed exhortation to his people. In verse, in verse 7, we get this general sense that Jesus tells the Philadelphians that he has authority to grant salvation to all who call on him, and he has authority to execute justice on all who deny his name. But we move to verse 8, and Jesus narrows his gaze on the Philadelphians. And he tells them that the doors of the kingdom of God have been flung open for them, and that nothing that they experienced at the hands of those who were persecuting them could ever change that fact for them. And, and I, I want to put a pin in that, and I want to just, I want to ask us this morning, do we believe that? Like, do we believe that if you've been bought by the blood of Christ, that, that nothing can happen to you to pluck you from his hand? No matter how often you share the gospel with your coworkers and they tell you you're a dummy, that can't pluck you from God's hand. No matter how many times we walk the streets during Gospel and Grub and we find people in the neighborhood to try to share the gospel with and they just scoff at us like, you, like we believe in some you know, old grandfather in the sky and the Bible is just some book that's been tampered with for hundreds of years now or thousands of years. That can't pluck us from the hand of God. Not even death itself could pluck us from the hand of God. Friends, do you believe that this morning? Jesus says in, in John 6, verse 37, he's got the crowd gathered. And he says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Therefore, if you are in Christ this morning, friends, you can rest knowing that Jesus will never cast out those who are his. Jesus will always keep the door to the kingdom of God open for those who are his people. And Jesus continues on. He says that though the Philadelphian church had but little power, they stayed faithful to the word and did not deny the name of Jesus. Now, we, we can't be exactly sure what Jesus means here when he says they had little power. Uh, some commentators like to argue that, well, you know, maybe the church in Philadelphia had a small congregation. Could be. The structure of this letter seems to paint this dichotomy between uh, the, the weak church and the seemingly strong Jews in the city. So maybe they had a small congregation given the large population of Jews in the city. Some commentators argue that, well, maybe they were just poor. Maybe they had uh, little financial power to do anything and, and, you know, compared with uh, the, the wealthier Jews in the city. Could be. Some even claim that, well, maybe this church was just filled with a bunch of cultural outcasts. You know, you can go back and scan through the Gospels and you can see that uh, pretty frequently Jesus called the outcasts of society to himself. Pretty frequently Jesus 
uh, spend time with the lepers and the blind and the lame and the sick and the deaf and the tax collectors and sinners. So could make sense that, well, maybe the uh, Philadelphian church was made up of outcasts. Sure. Could be a combination of all three of those. We, we don't really know. But at the end of the day, the reason that Jesus commended the church in Philadelphia had nothing to do with her power. It had everything to do with her perseverance. Their power was minuscule. Whatever, that, whatever, the, whatever Jesus determined the definition of power, it was little. It was minuscule. It meant absolutely nothing. But Jesus doesn't commend them for their power. He commends them for their perseverance. And so friends, understand this morning that we will never be able to white-knuckle our way into heaven. We will never be able to to strong-arm our way into heaven. And even for for us as a local church and as a staff, this is helpful because there is nothing that we will ever be able to do that will open the door to the kingdom of heaven for anyone. This helps both the local church today and the individual believer fight against pragmatism. You see, as the local church, we don't need to fill massive auditoriums to to kick open the kingdom of heaven. We don't need to to, to have smoke machines and fog and lasers and all these gimmicks. to our. We don't have to add those to our worship to, to try to pry open the kingdom of heaven. We don't have to craft some incredible uh, church activities so that we can just, you know, hold the door open a little bit longer so a few more people can squeak by into the kingdom of heaven. Church, I'll put all of my cards and all of Pillar DC's cards here on the table right now. Our shtick, our gimmick, is we preach Christ and Him crucified. That's it. We're a one-trick pony. We're not gonna. We're not gonna woo souls to Christ. We're gonna pre. Or, yeah, we're gonna preach Christ and Him crucified. Because if we don't preach Christ and Him crucified, well, we might as well pack up and go back home to Tennessee. This means absolutely nothing if we don't preach Christ and Him crucified. Trying to to have a residency and plant churches without preaching Christ and Him crucified is garbage. It means absolutely nothing. So it guards the church against pragmatism, but it also guards the individual believer against pragmatism. Church, trust not in your own power this morning. Our power is weak. We are just like the church in Philadelphia. We are weak, we're feeble. Trust not in your own power to grant you access into the kingdom of God. Instead, trust in Jesus' power and the work that he has already done for you. That's the power we we bank our lives on. That's the power that that the church in Philadelphia banked everything, were willing to risk everything for, was the power of Christ, not the power of themselves. In Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. So friends, if, if you want entrance into the kingdom of God, the answer lies not in yourself. The answer lies not in your local church. There's nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to open the gates of heaven for anyone. Instead, the answer lies in trusting in Christ. 
Trusting in Jesus who was fully God and fully man, who was born of the virgin, who lived the perfect and sinless life that we could never live, but though we were called, we were supposed to live, but couldn't because of our sin. Jesus died the death on the cross that we should have died. We were worthy and deserving of because of our sin. Yet Christ bore that death on our behalf. He was buried. And three days later, he rose again because he was without sin. And he defeated sin and death and the grave. And he secured with a, with a tight fist the salvation of those who would trust in him. So friends, I I plead with you this morning that if you are not in Christ, trust not in your own power to grant you access to the kingdom of heaven. Trust in the power of Christ. Because if if we trust in anything else other than the power of Christ and his death on the cross for us, we will never see the kingdom of God. Jesus continues on. Verse 10. He says, Because you've kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Jesus comforts his church again by ensuring them that if they will faithfully endure, he will keep them for all eternity. Church, this should give us great confidence. And this should instill great boldness in us to go out and make Christ known in our neighborhood. We can confidently proclaim Christ because he securely and perfectly promises to keep us in the face of persecution. So you may be thinking this morning, well, you know, I don't really have time to share the gospel or I don't really know how to share my faith that well. Well, do we have two application points for you? First, I mentioned this at the beginning of this, uh, at the beginning in the... uh, Announcements, but on Friday, December 10th, we will be gathering here at 5 p.m., going around the neighborhood, singing Christmas carols. It's a great way to get people to either listen to you or hate you. Uh, But we're going to be singing Christmas carols. We're going to be giving out invitations um, to our Christmas candlelight service. And along the way, we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, get into some gospel conversations. For anyone who will give us the time of day, we will happily and confidently make Christ known. And so if, if you don't know how to share your faith that well, well, awesome. We'll pair you with someone who does. We'll be going out in groups. So all you have to do is just go and watch. Part of discipleship and growing in sanctification and learning how to share your faith well is just watching other people do it. It's a great opportunity to make Christ known. Secondly, if you're like, well, work's tough. I can't get to, uh, can't get to the Christmas carol can't fit that in my schedule, then two days later, on Sunday morning, right after the service, hopefully that's already in your schedule, um, on Sunday morning, December 12th, immediately after the service, we will be going and doing Gospel and Grub. Gospel and Grub is a, uh, a really neat and unique thing that our church does. Super simple. All we do is we go out in twos and threes, we find people walking around on the street, and we just ask if we can pray for them, Try to strike up a conversation and get into some gospel conversations. And so again, that's a perfect opportunity that if you don't know how to share your faith well, if you're just, if you're, if you don't really feel comfortable doing stuff like that, that's okay. We're not going to throw you into the deep end. 
will pair you with someone who knows how to confidently and boldly share their faith. And all you have to do is just watch and listen. Again, this is another great opportunity to make Christ known in our neighborhood. So friends, I want to, I want to challenge us, my, myself included in this. I want to challenge us to make Christ known, not because it's easy. I guess, like even doing gospel and grub, I still get terrified walking up to complete strangers trying to share the gospel with them. And for the church in Philadelphia, making Christ known was not easy. Nor does Christ anywhere ever promise ease and comfort for the believer. So I want to encourage you to make Christ known, not because it's easy, but because he promises to keep you along the way. Point number three. We are comforted by Christ's commitment. We are comforted by Christ's commitment. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. In verse 7, Jesus told the Philadelphians who he was. In verse 8, he commends them for their endurance. In verse 10, he promises to keep them while they endure. And he closes this letter in verses 11 and 12 by promising to dwell with his people. The saying by Jesus in verses 11 and 12, talking about the, the pillar of the temple uh, is actually, it actually has some interesting cultural implications. The, the city of Philadelphia was notorious for having, uh, was notorious for being devastated by earthquakes. And in AD 17, this massive earthquake came through and just devastated the city, ripped everything apart. And during their reconstruction, the city rebuilt their buildings as best they could. And, you know, in, in AD 17, technology wasn't quite as advanced as it is today. But in AD 17, they rebuilt their city in such a way that their buildings would be able to be more resistant against earthquakes. But if you've ever been in an earthquake, or if you've ever seen the destruction caused by an earthquake, you know that they will destroy what they will destroy. And Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, uses this cultural implication for this city like Bob Ross on a Saturday morning, to paint a metaphorical picture for the church in Philadelphia. He tells them that though their life around them may feel like it's in the middle of an earthquake, though things seem like they're falling apart all around, persecution, mockery, scolding, stoning, death, though this may be true, they could rest in confidence knowing that if they endured until the end, if they persevered until Christ came or they died first, that they would be firmly secured in the new heavens and the new earth. Church, this is a, a beautiful reality that still rings true for us today. If we will endure in the face of persecution, if we will stand firm in making Christ known and not denying His name, then Jesus' promise, his commitment to his people is that he will firmly and surely keep them 
in the temple of the Lord. And nothing can ever change that. No outside circumstances, no persecution, death even itself can't change that. So I want to close this morning by, by reading Revelation 21, verses 1 to 7. Here in, in Revelation 3, we get just a, just, we, we just dip our toes in the water of the new heavens and the new earth. But in Revelation 21, John, he pulls back the curtains a little bit and he allows us to see the new heavens and the new earth. So I want to spend some time just meditating on this. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come back up. As they're coming up, I do want to encourage you just to flip over to Revelation 21. If you're at the cover of your Bible, you've gone too far. In Revelation 21, verses 1 to 7, John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I love this in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Again, going back to the, the truthfulness of Christ. Verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers. And we've seen this, the, the idea of the one who conquers throughout the letters to the churches. This is the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Church, that is the promise that we look forward to. For those of us who are in Christ, that is our future. Christ promises his people that persecution will inevitably come. Whether we experience it right now or whether the, the church in the future experiences it, we know that to be a believer invites mockery and scolding, maybe one day even death. But for those of us who are in Christ, this is the promise we have to look forward to if we endure to the end. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are, God, you're good. You love and you care for your people. Lord, you promise. You promise the new heavens and the new earth to those who endure until the end. So God, I pray this morning that you would comfort us by your character knowing and believing that you are the Holy One, the true One who has all authority on heaven and on earth, who has the key of David. God, I pray that you would comfort us by keeping us. If we're facing persecution and difficulties from those around us, 
God, I pray that we would be comforted knowing that nothing they could ever say or do to us will change the fact that we are your people. We've been bought and purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And God, lastly, I pray that you would comfort us by your promise to usher us with open arms into the new heavens and the new earth when we endure until the end. God, I love you. I'm thankful for your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.